I'm Keaton, and this is Withness. And I'm Laura. We're trying to uncover this word that may or may not be a word, but we think is an important idea. And that's the idea of withness, the state of being with, I think is what it says on the internet when you look this word up. But what if you listen to our opening episode, we describe this quite a bit, like what we're up to here. But the big idea is to just try to find the language so that we can find the way of how to be with each other. And this first season, we're exploring what it means to be with people, particularly through grief and loss, in one of the hardest times to be together. And we should say that almost every episode needs a trigger warning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we deal with really heavy, important topics and get some beautiful stories, but they are they are dealing with really intense levels of grief. Yes, and some of them are very specific. So... Some of them need a specific label, but also I think that also means specific shareability, right? So on the one hand, it might be too hard for some folks to listen to, but for people who this is a lived reality, it might be refreshing to hear these stories told. We are starting with my friend, Sarah. Yes. And it really comes through that you guys are friends. So do you want to tell me a little bit about how you know Sarah? Yes, we were a part of a book club where only a portion of us read the books. Okay. (laughs) Were you part of that portion? Yes. Sarah was friends of friends. And so we would get together every once in a while and we would kind of for a little while talk about the book. Um, And then, but it always ended up just being a conversation about life and those big conversations about what does it mean to be people. And so Sarah and I, it's just such an easy, like we could go, it's, that's one of those relationships where we could probably go years without talking. I think maybe we even did <laughs> go a few the years and then got together just to do this podcast. And it is just, she's very easy yeah, to she, connect to. She does. She seems delightful. So she's taking applications for more friends. <laughs> I'm like, you don't put in a good word for me. I'll, I'll see what she's got available. Uh, Sarah is the wife to Jake. You're going to hear, hear about his story in here too. She is the mother to Lily and Liam and Levi and Olive and Jacob. And she makes her home down in Cincinnati. I used to run into her all the time when we both lived downtown. And it was always like just a breath of fresh air to see her out in the world. And she's one of the first people when we decided to do this project, she was one of the first people I thought of uh, because uh, we're going to deal with infant loss. She's one of the first people I thought of because so often these stories go untold. Right. And infant loss is such a hard thing for people to talk about. Um, And there's a whole range of that. That could be miscarriages. That could be stillbirths. That could be uh, people who lose a baby just very early in their life. And that whole range of experiences is sometimes just hard for us, so hard for us to bear. Um, I know my... uh, My family, my mom and dad lost a child who lived about a week and died young. And it lived in our family like this ghost, this possibility. And I just think in our world, you're not really supposed to talk about these kind of stories. And so our hope in sitting down with Sarah was that if you've experienced this, you could listen and hear a little bit of your story told. If you know somebody who you maybe don't know how to talk to them, you could share this with them. Sure. So they could hear hear somebody else's uh, story. Just to prepare people for what they're about to hear a little bit, 
Uh, one of the things I appreciated is that because these stories go untold, there's not really a script on how to go through this for either the people who are in the center of the loss or their friends. And so you have to come up with what you're going to do on your own. And so Sarah and Jake really had to make their own decisions about what it meant to go through this. Mm -hmm. And they did things that felt, it, it seemed like they were doing things that felt true to them at the time, like they were doing what they needed. And I really think that's a powerful thing to do. Yeah. And part of the premise of this is obviously like finding the words for things. And I think we do talk in the interview a little bit about like learning. They had to learn this whole new world of different medical jargons and learn the meaning of what it was that was afflicting their son and even learning the language that was used around the cemetery, right? Like finding out they learned all these new words and phrases uh, because they were learning pain. And so uh, our part of our big project is like learning the language of suffering, but also learning the language of support, too. So anything that stood out to you as you were listening and editing? Yeah, something that I really appreciated about Sarah is how she was so unapologetic with her big feelings as somebody who is also a feeler. Sometimes I feel like I'm not supposed to be feeling that strongly. And just all through her grief, she really leaned into um, feeling all of it. As a person who processes things similarly, it was just really cool to see her do that and to have freedom in it. Yeah, I think a lot of people, even if this isn't your specific story, will appreciate the bravery of her telling this story to us. So here's Sarah's story. I want to start our conversation with little Sarah. Mm -hmm. And I want to know if little Sarah always, were you the kind of kid who always dreamed of having kids? Yes, 100%. My mom would tell me how I would um, wake up in the middle of the night and she would hear me um, climb out of my crib and I would go get my little dollies and my cookware set and my dishes and I'd be playing in the middle of the night. Kids to me... It just felt like, I hate to use the word calling when it comes to motherhood because that's so cliche. But um, yeah, I just always loved kids. I would either rather be spending time with babies and toddlers or um, my older cousins and adults. I just always was pretty introverted and never really jived well with my peers. So <laughs> that's probably still true. Um, but yes, I've always wanted to be a mother. To kind of hold up what you imagined versus reality, was there anything that you like really imagined doing this with your kids that you would be really excited to to do this with them someday? Um, homeschooling for one, um, probably because I was homeschooled and I just loved the freedom and um, the nature, doing the nature walks and the nature studies and all the tea, tea parties and whatnot. And um I, probably because my mom also did that with me for a time. Yeah, I just, the snuggles and the early morning, all the kids climbing into bed um, was such a beautiful picture to me. Um, reality is not the same, but um, yeah. 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 I'm sure in all kinds of ways that reality got a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. A little bit altered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit. You meet Jake. 
Mm-hmm. And do you guys decide right away to have family? Tell us about your family the first years before Levi came into the picture. So Jake and I met when we were 18 um, and quickly sort of got together, um, knew we were going to get married, but we just wanted to wait for that until graduation from college. And so we had Lily first. She was early. She was in the NICU for um, two and a half weeks. And then shortly thereafter, very surprisingly, got pregnant again with Liam, and they are just barely over a year apart. So I thought for sure I was going to have a break, and I did take a break. <laughs> yeah. And were you guys going on nature hikes and tea parties? And- <laughs> Actually, yes. And I know I can romanticize it because of the trauma of Levi, but... um yeah, we were going to parks all the time. We were going on hikes. I mean, they were only three and four by the time he was born. So it was still that really sweet age of discovery. Um, but yeah, the snuggles, the tea parties, <laughs> um, all the things that I envisioned were happening. Yeah. yeah. And your daughter is kind of like a mini you. So oh, you were getting to, she is. to relive your dreams a yeah. lot with her. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she, um, I always thought that I would name my kids after flowers 100%. I mean, seven-year-old Sarah was writing down names of flowers, like <laughs> hyacinth, <laughs> like, things like that. And so she's Lily Dandelion. and Violet. <laughs> yes. And she is my little flower child. And then Olive eventually came later and Olive Rose, you know, so there are some of those things that still pop up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then you're pregnant with Levi. Mm-hmm. And... The mood, the mood is going to shift a little here. Mm-hmm. When did you learn something might be different about Levi? Um, I would say within the first couple months of pregnancy, definitely before the 20-week ultrasound. I distinctly remember somewhere around 14, 15 weeks, which is very early. Um, I didn't feel fear. I just felt this really heavy gravity around the pregnancy and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I was like, is this, is this fear? And I'd bring it to some of my friends and immediately it was like, um, well, let's repent of that fear, (laughs) which was kind of damaging. Oh no. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, and even then I was like, okay, I'm going to repent and I'm going to do the right thing. Um, and I was sitting there like, this is, I don't, I have nothing to repent of. This is not fear. This is, a weightiness. This is a heaviness. Um, and I just knew I was like, my belly's not as big as with the other two kids. Something is just different. Um, and so when we went to the 20 week ultrasound, I remember Jake and I were driving separately for some reason. I don't remember why I must've had to do something after it. Um, so he had the kids and I was driving in front of him and I was so keyed up not knowing why, um, that I almost like drove the car off of the road right in front of the doctor's office. Something was so heavy on me. And so we go into the ultrasound. The kids are there. They're super excited. They're going to find out if it's a brother or sister. Not Like Lily had never been to the other ultrasound. So this was a huge deal for like our family. Um, and you know, almost right off the bat, the the tech is just really quiet. And I'm looking at the screen because it's right there. And she's not really saying a whole lot. And um, 
And then she asks me if I'd been leaking amniotic fluid because she can't really see any. And I was like, no, I've not had any of that. Everything's been normal. And she's like, okay, I'm just going to go take these pictures and talk to the doctor real quick. And I'm like, well, that's not normal. (laughs) You know, before she had said, there's just not enough fluid. I'm having a really hard time finding out the sex of the baby. Um, that was really strange to me, obviously, because usually they can see that pretty quickly. She was going to write it down on a card for us. And I was still clutching this card in my hand that she didn't get to write on um, as we walked to the the other room. And we're all just kind of sitting there and like my heart is like beating so fast. I'm like, I got to prepare myself. And Jake and I are we're trying not to look at each other because I know if I look at him, it's just going to be the end. Um, the kids are doing their own thing, you know, like they do in a doctor's office. And we're trying to contain them. They're only three and four. Um, and the doctor comes in and he's like, immediately starts talking about this thing. Well, we can't, we can't find a stomach. We can't find any kidneys. We can't find this. We can't find that. And he starts talking about this thing called Potter syndrome. And he's very kind and he's very um, empathetic, but he's still just giving us all this research and and information. And I'm just still sitting there like, what? What do you mean? There's I was still stuck on that. We can't find a stomach. And I'm like, are you? are you sure? Like they're so small, you know, like like, these are the things running through my head. And, um, he's like, I'm sorry. It's just really this Potter syndrome. He said something like, it's not compatible with life. And I'm like, I still just remember sitting there just nodding my head like, okay. And he is talking about, well, we're going to make this appointment and you're going to need to be transferred to this specialist and you need to go to this hospital. And, I don't even think Jake and I had even still again, had even looked at each other, you know, and, um, and then I got into the car afterwards by myself and I just could not breathe. I didn't know what to do. I still don't know what we did after that. <laughs> I mean, that phrase not compatible with life. I feel like that takes translating, you know, right. Like, that's not as direct as you maybe needed him to be in the oh, moment. No, because then I'm thinking like, what the kids are there obviously they heard all this they don't know what in the world they don't know right mom and dad were really happy and excited and then suddenly no one's talking at all yeah um and I remember texting some of my closest friends at the time and they're all like well um well you don't know yet you still have more ultrasounds you still have you know trying to be encouraging and um trying to keep my hopes up and but I still because of that heaviness and weightiness yes. that I had, I still knew that this was not going to turn out well. Mm-hmm. Whether that mother's intuition, prophecy, whatever you want to call yeah. it, I still had it. And nothing anyone could tell me was going to change that heaviness. Yeah. So was there like a process where this kind of, you absorb this, you understand this more? Yeah, there was so many doctor's appointments um within days of that first ultrasound more ultrasounds I had to have a I think it was an MRI like my whole body is in this tube I don't even know what's called um 
where they're trying to just figure out more of what's happening. And like every, every doctor that I saw, I mean, I still remember their faces and how they were acting and some were more empathetic and more gentle, which was so kind. And some were just more like very straight and to the point. Cause at that point it still had only been, you know, two or three days. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and then that same weekend we had to go to, my dad had a camper at a campground and they had like a Halloween thing for the kids. So we've got to go be like these happy people for Put our on a happy per person costume. <laughs> yeah. 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 For our kids. And I'm like, and people are, people in kind of knew a little bit of what was going on. And people are like, well, people who didn't know were like, do you know what the sex is? You know, are you going to find out? And I'm like, well, we don't know yet. And someone said, oh, well, as long as you have a healthy baby, everything's fine. Right. And I'm just staring at her like, yeah, I, totally. Such a, absolutely. It's such a toss away phrase. It really is. That ends up being so hurtful sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And she's just trying to be kind. You know, she mm -hmm. didn't know anything. Yeah. Um, same weekend, we're hearing things, you know, like, um. Well, better luck next time. <laughs> yeah, I will. I'll never forget that being hugged and said, "Well, better, better luck next time. Try again. Try again." Was that person from the eighteen hundreds or something? No, I feel like that's a <laughs> no. maybe, maybe an older mindset. Um, nope. So, do you remember you carried him to mm -hmm. to his term? Yeah. Right. Well, mm -hmm. How did that? Would did that end up being short of nine months? Yes. Yeah, so he was born at 35 weeks and I, um, my doctor had said, whatever week you get to, whatever day you get to, um, you just never know because I mean, he didn't have any amniotic fluid. And so he, he, I had been told like it, it, he could die just because you lay a certain way because mm -hmm. there's none of that cushion. Um, of the amniotic fluid around him and so for the next you know 15 weeks from that time I was hyper hyper aware of every move that I made every position that I slept in sat down in if I if one of the kids rested on my belly or if I had to pick one of them up you know I'm like oh my gosh am I killing him right now you know yeah <laughs> because they they had said there is a possibility he could be born alive or, you know, he could pass bef before because of one of these things. And I, like that, I think that was the moment where any joy of his pregnancy of any time that I had remaining was like stripped away. Um, cause I couldn't even like live. Right. You know? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a wild tension to live yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. It, it's probably what, most pregnant people are living with mm -hmm. but it's just so pronounced mm -hmm. and intense mm -hmm. for you yeah and because of the lack of amniotic fluid um he couldn't move so I didn't feel mm -hmm. movement um none of the rolls and tumbles and kicks so when I did I distinctly remember where I was standing or where I was mm -hmm. sitting um and it was probably only three or four times that I actually felt him so that was another thing that I felt was robbed that I just couldn't even it was just basically this giant mass in front of me uh, just hanging off my body I knew he was in there mm -hmm. um 
I went to one of my friends who was a chiropractor and she was um, like working on one of the muscles around my hips and she dug in and she felt him. He like kicked her hand Mm -hmm. and I'll never forget that because that was still movement from him. Yeah. What are you, how are you processing his life? Are Mm -hmm. you thinking he's going to have any time with you? Are you thinking? Um, Well, at that point, we had then moved on to talking about um, end of life care, mm-hmm. like pal- palliative care. And we were like, we just want whatever help that we can when he's born. Mm-hmm. I- even if it's for a few short minutes, we want everything available. And there had been some talk of like, well, we can give you like infusions of saline and maybe we can do an interuterine surgery. Um so like there are these peaks and valleys of, oh, well, we have to go see this doctor because then they can tell us, can we have this surgery? Can we have this infusion? And I was on the Internet looking at, well, there's this one case where this mom did get these infusions and her baby survived and he was able to have surgery after. And and then the downward shift of, well, that's not possible. He doesn't even have he doesn't have kidneys. He doesn't even have ureters. So even if you wanted a kidney transplant. You can't because he doesn't have ureters. Mm-hmm. And how do you transplant a stomach? You know, all hope was like stripped away at that point. Mm-hmm. So he's born. He lives a handful of minutes. Seventy six. So, so that that we believe. Yeah, yeah. And what I remember is you <clears throat> you all had a photographer with you mm-hmm. for Levi's life and mm-hmm. birth mm-hmm. and. What I was thinking about as I thought about that is that you have this mix of things you don't get any choice mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And then you had some things you got to choose, mm-hmm. right? One is to have pictures of him taken, mm-hmm. to have some people in the room with you. Mm-hmm. You, For all the choices you lost, you, you got to control some of mm-hmm. that. I wonder how did you go about making some of those decisions, even just the one of, of getting some pictures of him and having people with you? It's like the Lord just brings you people. You don't even know why um I had known Melanie the photographer for several years before that probably a decade before even uh Levi came to be um and so she was a very close friend and she had already been present at another friend's birth for um babies who had died and so I knew it was possible and even at the time you know almost 10 years ago that was not really a thing that people were doing, but because she had the courage and because our other friend had the courage to have the, this story be brought to the masses, so to speak, I then could have the courage to do that. And so it was like a no brainer that she was going to be there. She was already, she was going to be there regardless of if she was a photographer or not. Um, So to, to have that gift of her art and her talent, um, which is beautiful to me because I, I love those things. It's one of the best things I think we could have ever done was have her there. Yeah. We've talked about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like there, there have been times where difficult births or complicated births or stillbirths or whatever, Mm -hmm. were almost like this thing that happened in the shadows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, that families just did not talk about Mm -hmm. Uh, or if they did it was very factual Mm -hmm. 
just kind of calculated mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. And so for you all to put, like, give Levi a face, mm-hmm. give him a name, mm-hmm. give him a story, mm-hmm. it was strikingly different. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope it it becomes more of a, a normal thing. Mm-hmm. Because that's this giant experience you went through mm-hmm. that it would be wild for you to return to life and not <laughs> acknowledge right. that you have lived with the reality of this child in your family right. for these many months. Right. I mean, if I didn't have those pictures, I would literally have nothing. I have the blankets that I wrapped him in. I have clothes that we put him on briefly for pictures. Um one of the one of the results of these kind of births being in the shadows mm-hmm. is that we have almost had zero grief rituals for mm-hmm. this. Like mm-hmm. a family might do something privately. Mm-hmm. There's there are more cemeteries now with mm-hmm. like almost like a baby section. They're called baby more. land. Okay, so uh, yeah, I, yeah, I <laughs> found myself struggling what to call it, um, like a memory garden or something. <laughs> well, the one baby land. <laughs> Babyland, that's what they called it at the cemetery we went to. And I remember pulling up. I mean, you know, he had been born like three days previously. Sure. So here I am just delivering a baby. trying and to all win. your chemicals are oh, wow. off the charts. Yes. Yeah. And then I have two other kids that were trying to figure out, well, they I'm not taking them to a cemetery right now. And what am I we're going to do with them? And all of the ins and outs of trying to plan a funeral with um to yeah so baby land um we drove up or just kind of following this um cemetery director around the cemetery and she's stopping at various spots and the first place she took us was this one area and it was kind of amongst all these really old um gravestones and all of a sudden you start seeing like teeny tiny little headstones and they're all like really crammed together and um I'm like what is this and she pops out and we get out and I'm struggling to get out of the car and it's freezing because it's January and it happened to be like one of the coldest Januaries on record and she's like okay so I wanted to stop by here. This is what we call baby land. This is where all most of our babies are buried. And I'm just standing there and I'm like, there is no way in hell (laughs) that I am going to put my baby here. Like it just felt odd yeah, and kind of awkward. And, but at the same time, like so sad because there were so many And it was like, she's like, yeah, we just don't really have, there's maybe a few plots left. Like there's just so many babies here. We just kind of don't have any more room. Hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm definitely not. (laughs) Um, So we keep driving and this again, where Melanie comes in, um, we're driving and we're only at this cemetery because of Melanie. And, um, we go up this hill and the one and only time the sunlight had come out that day, it breaks free of these clouds. And I just want another one of those memories that will never, it's like seared into my brain. The sun breaks free and I turn my head to the right as we're driving down. And I'm like, I know I've been here. What is this? And I look over and there is my friend 
Melanie's sister, Allie's gravestone. And I instantly sobbed. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the place. If he can be anywhere close mm. to my friend, to my closest friend's sister, who she is herself a mom, and like, then this is the spot. And there happened to be um, a spot not too far from her. So I, you can see her gravestone and we still don't we still don't have one for Levi that's probably another podcast in itself um Takes but, time, yeah, these things. Yeah. yes um he is very very close to her um and that just felt like that that is right this is where he needs to be yeah so you you get to make that decision mm -hmm. um you get to find a, a resting place mm -hmm. for him and you guys also decided to hold services mm-hmm um, and I want to talk about, because you had a, a burial service where May sang, mm -hmm. and I want us to talk about Patty Griffin here in a minute. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about even just deciding to do a, a, a service at your church. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I think you and Jake got up together and talked about, am I remembering that right? Um, he did. Jake did. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. You guys decided to eulogize mm -hmm. a child you had known for mm -hmm. A short, a, time. a short amount of time. Yeah. Tell me about how did you make those choices and, and what was that like? Well, we felt like regardless of how long his life was, it it mattered. And it was so important to us. Like that was he came from my body, like so close to my heart. Like I, I needed the world to know about him. Mm -hmm. Um, And so <laughs> I don't we did kind of make it like this big <laughs> production. Um, so we had a service at the cemetery and their chapel there was very small. And that's where his casket was. Um, May also played there. Sweet May. She was all throughout this whole thing. Um, she played there and we just had a few short words um, from one of our pastor friends and people could then go to the casket so to speak it was closed um and then after that everyone left and then just jake and i and may again and then uh, another close pastor friend went to the gravesite, and she played um some songs that were very dear to us just her and her guitar and i think greg prayed and then we were left alone there um which i am so thankful for I could not have envisioned people there witnessing that level of grief. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Jake, he still talks about how he, he thought he was going to have to carry me away from the site. Like I couldn't, the level of just weeping that was happening. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, I was literally laying on the casket and what, how was he going to be able to get me away from my baby? Those are memories that are still very, very dark, very dark. Um, walking away from the casket and I couldn't see, I couldn't breathe. Um, and, and then heading straight from there to another service <laughs> um, just seems wild now. Um, I mean, I'm so glad we did it. It was necessary. Um, but thinking back, I almost wonder, I almost would have stopped then. 
Well, I mean, you've done something so important mm -hmm. in that moment. I mm -hmm. just want to acknowledge mm -hmm. that. You know, I there's a guy I've been reading. Um, he's an undertaker. And his name's Thomas Lynch. And mm -hmm. one of the things he says is, like, when we do these services without a body, mm -hmm. that we're missing something important that we need to do. Mm. He says he says this line about how getting the body where it, it needs to go is how the living get to where they need to be. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what you're what you were working in that moment mm -hmm. should have been wailing. Mm. Right. Because it's a distortion of creation. Yes. That you were made to be near that child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to be intimate with that child mm -hmm. for so many you know mm -hmm. maybe 18 years if you were that kind of parent <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at, le at least those first 12 years or so yeah. you're meant to be yeah. as close as possible to that child yes and so what you were experiencing was a, a wrenching away of what yeah. was supposed to be it yeah. makes total sense to me yeah um but you you did it mm -hmm. and i i wonder if that maybe helped you do something that a lot of families don't mm. put themselves through mm -hmm. I remember thinking, um, I want to feel everything that I can possibly feel because this is the only time that I get to feel it. And the week between his birth and the funeral, the clothes that we had picked out, um, I, w I stuffed them down my shirt. And the kids will... I don't know if it's because they see seen pictures or because I've talked about it, but they will mention how mommy walked around with blankets and clothes stuffed in her shirt, <laughs> like right where his head had rested yeah. when he was born. And, um, even in the weeks after his burial, um, even in the cold, I would go by myself to the graveside and I would just this tiny little plot that was still just the dirt, you know, I would curl my entire body around it, almost like he was still in the womb mm -hmm. and just weep. And I remember thinking like, how do I get up every single time I visit this gravesite? How do I stand up and walk away from my son? Right. And I'm like, if I could build a house next to this, be that weird lady in the graveyard, you know? Even then, I was still wearing the blanket. If anybody could pull it off, I feel like you could pull it off. <laughs> I was just, you know, wearing the postpartum clothes and they're all black and like <laughs> this blanket shoved in my shirt. <sighs> oh, okay. And then I I think I stopped visiting. I, ha I don't visit as much um, because the grass grew over. Yeah. That was a devastating day. Yeah. I couldn't find his spot as easily and I and the the size of him wasn't there anymore oh man and then there's still there's still no how dare that grass <laughs> no how dare it I do want us to talk about Patty Griffin a little yes because what I remember is that um part of the story was May saying heavenly day mm -hmm. and I can't hear that song without thinking of you guys mm -hmm. uh well you gave me that song did I on the on the soundtrack? Did I did I make you a playlist? Yes, that, <laughs> I always made that, people playlists. You did. Then. It said um, <laughs> songs that I love that you should too. Yeah. I distinctly remember it. You know, back when we burned CDs. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was on there. And so that song actually starts with Lily, because when I was in the hospital trying to not have her be delivered so early, I was there for a week. Every single night. 
I would play that song in my little headphones um, and cry. Just that song. It was so hopeful to me then. Yes. So hopeful. And so when everything started happening with Levi, that song came back around. And um, I would always find like the smallest place in my house that I could find. And it happened to be <laughs> sounds another bizarre thing. I would just sit. I would close the toilet lid, sit on the toilet. And then the way that our door swung it would um, kind of box me into the toilet if the door was open. Mm -hmm. So I would close that door and squinch myself, my pregnant self, onto this toilet and just sit and listen to this song and cry because it felt like this very small, safe place to be. Yeah. Yeah, so that song was very pivotal, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's so many of my conversations have ended up circling around music in some way. Yes, yes. Um, and I think her voice is so unique and mm -hmm. May's voice mm -hmm. is so kind of like a mirror image. It's, mm -hmm. it sounds happier than Patty Griffin's yeah. voice, but it's still got yes. that richness to it. better. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just like this knowing, mm -hmm. you know, so even when she sings about joy, it's mm -hmm. got some pain mixed into mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder what it's like for you all now to, to just talk about Levi with, um, your kids or mm -hmm. with friends, I always think of this, um, a couple of things. One is I think about my own, cause my parents had a child that they mm -hmm. lost mm -hmm. within just a week or so. Mm -hmm. And she was born before me. Mm -hmm. So it was like this legend in the family mm -hmm. by the time I came around mm -hmm. and probably still like the grief of it, I think was still around mm -hmm. in my mom, especially, mm -hmm. um, that's probably why I also like Patty Griffin. <laughs> it's just, it's in my There's bloodstream. There's hope there, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but that child like lived in my imagination. Mm -hmm. Has like, oh, if Leanne was here, this would be different. Mm -hmm. You know, or mm -hmm. like if my older sister would tease me, like, mm -hmm. well, if Leanne was here, maybe she'd be on my side mm -hmm. in this fight, you know? <laughs> like I just, yeah. even as a kid, that, that child still lived in my was still formative to me yeah. to know that that child existed yeah and it has helped me to understand my parents even mm -hmm. I wonder kind of shifting into your own life mm -hmm. and the aftermath for you is do you feel like you do anything differently because of Levi's life like you mentioned like the <laughs> having to deal with the grief of that mm -hmm. do you feel like there was any other any other lasting effects of of knowing that pain in the mm -hmm. way that you move through the world mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking on, on the drive here, almost like I need my life to be a a eulogy for him, mm. you know, um, because just like I said just a minute ago, like we are how we are because of him. You could call it grief, whatever, but there is still joy. There is still profound um feeling and meaning and empathy I think um that has opened the floodgates for just trauma or um hardship in general I I know that I will never again never again judge a mother for her choices I can't I just can't um because I've been faced with the same choices and um just watching other I mean, parents, yes, but mothers in general of how they struggle through their days and what can I do to lessen some of that struggle 
whether it's from pain or grief or whatever, like everyone has something. There's trauma everywhere. Yeah. And um, that's really just opened my eyes even more. Yeah. I think once you have felt that trauma reaction mm -hmm. in yourself, you mm -hmm. can see it better and it. have more empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of asking everybody this because mm -hmm. it's like to think about the people we've lost and to tell their stories is is a big piece of these conversations. But mm -hmm. the second one is, does that change how we live? Or have we thought about, have you thought about what you hope um, your people will do someday to honor you? <laughs> or how they'll talk about you? Or yeah. what song they'll play? Oh, or gosh. any of those thoughts? Um, I think that maybe this is a PTSD reaction, but I am constantly thinking of my own funeral. Okay. <laughs> So you got, you got a lot own, of thoughts. I don't even know if it would be my funeral or my husband's funeral or my children's funerals. I I think of what pictures they're going to play, what songs they're going to play. Yeah. But I don't, even though I'm thinking about it, I don't know that I have those details for myself. Um, I do feel this need that I want to write my kids so many letters. Mm. In the event that I'm not around for them. Um, because right now, the, I don't feel like they're old enough to see the depth of their mom. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know what they would say. You know, I want them to say she was kind. She was gentle. She loved me no matter what. You know, those those typical things. But I want them to know, like, my mom was wild and free. You know, like she loved Jesus and she did things that she loved and she just didn't care what other people thought about it. And she knew herself. And does that make sense? Like, <laughs> yeah. okay. I think they'll see you as wilder after they're all in school. You get that free time back. <laughs> they're so. no longer um, homeschooled. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, you know, having just lost my parents, yeah. I, every single word I had from them on paper, mm -hmm became oh. a thousand times more important yeah. right away. Yeah. Um, and so I think if you can think that way when mm -hmm. it's not an emergency mm -hmm. and when you're healthy and when mm -hmm. you're just doing it for mm -hmm. love and for yeah. the possibility, I think that's, that could be a really beautiful yeah. thing, especially because you're their mom. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> like, right. And because I think they need to know you and yeah. know the depth of your feeling yeah. for them. And um, yeah, well, I just, I, I think people will say that about you, that you were... <laughs> You know, so not yeah. crazy oh. cemetery lady way, but <laughs> even, but even that story just rings of a, a wild freedom. Yeah, that is also just so true. Yeah, you know, like that. You want to externalize your mm -hmm. insides, and mm -hmm. I, I think I see you as a person who's always trying to make sure those are the as close to the same as they can be. That's good. I I've noticed that I have one of my coping mechanisms is I carry around volumes of poetry okay. or liturgical prayer because yeah. the written word is so beautiful and important to me so that I feel like when I'm having an intense feeling instead of like having this giant outpouring that's very vulnerable, I can open up one of the books. I mean, I have two right here in my bag. Um, I can open it and I can read something that might not be exactly what I'm feeling, um, but it something resonates yeah. in, in it. And, and so I want to be able to like show that to my kids of here is, 
I mean, I highly doubt Liam is going to want to read poetry from his mother, <laughs> but I'm going to write it down for him so that he can see, oh, my mom had these great feelings and these deep emotions. And she wasn't someone who just made my meals yeah. and told me to get off the switch. You know? <laughs> he'll get there. He might well, be 45. Maybe. But he'll get there. I, <laughs> maybe Jacob will. <laughs> yeah, you, you I have, I have four. The odds I got, yes, two of each. <laughs> um, do you want to read a poem? Do you want to finish with a poem? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's right that since we're both Enneagram fours with five wings that we should close with the poem. Yes. And uh, you you do have Kate Bowler's uh, brand new book with her friend Jessica Ritchie. The Lives We Actually Have. Her podcast is one of my very favorites. If you haven't checked it out, it's called mm -hmm. Everything Happens. Mm -hmm. uh, let's hear one of their. This is a book of blessings, mm -hmm. but not the blessings you might expect. They're all for sort of specific feelings or situations. Yeah. What's this one called? Um, this one's called For Feeling It All. Um, blessed are you who feel things big. You who might feel embarrassment because of how overwhelming things can be. Blessed are you who need reminders that those emotions are not bad or good. They are just information. You feel angry because this is unjust. You feel sad because this is awful. You feel tired because this is exhausting. Your emotions are not wrong or bad or lying to you or telling the full truth. They are giving you a bit of data that you shouldn't ignore. We love and lose and fall and get back up and fail and try again. Your humanity is not an affront. We're reminding ourselves that this is who we are, how we're made. To feel the pain, the grief, the stress, the risk, the fear, the heartbreak. So you, beautiful creature, here is your permission slip to feel it all, to feel the joy and delight and excitement and the sorrow and fear and despair, all the yellows and pinks and violets and grays, because you are the whole damn sky. I think we're going to try after every episode to, to think not just about the words and the story, but how could those turn into action, right? How could the words become reality? And so after listening to uh, Sarah and Levi's story, um, what is there that we could offer to the world? <laughs> and one of the things I thought of is just sometimes when you don't have the words, like sending a song to someone can be a thing to do. You know, uh, I passed along songs to Sarah and her family, and then our friend May, like, lived those songs and played them for them. And so maybe that's something that you could do for somebody you know who's hurting, is if you don't have the words to give them somebody else's that resonate. So maybe today there's a song you need to send someone, or a poem you need to send, or a quote, or, like, borrow somebody else's words when you can't find them for yourself 